BFS for us is a jumping off point. The dream is to have a grid rival sports book, right? To have a motorsport specific sports book. And we believe that if we do that, we can capture 30, 50% of all handle bet on motorsports in, in the country at some day, some point in time. So that's the goal. Hey, this is Jesse here. And thanks for checking out episode 36, where I'm joined by Ross from Grid Rival, which is the home screen for race fans. In this episode, Ross explains why racing and F1 in particular has become more popular than ever over the last few years. He also talks about how GridRival was able to acquire over 180,000 users in his first year of operation and why he thinks racing is the only sport with a large enough audience to create a unicorn business out of a niche operator that's focused on it. Ross was an awesome guest and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. But before we get started, I wanted to quickly plug the Betting Startups newsletter, a monthly roundup of everything newsworthy from the industry's early stage ecosystem. If you're an industry startup with something to share, send us a link by a Twitter DM and we just might feature it in the next issue, which goes up to hundreds of influential industry stakeholders every month. But enough about that. Let's get on to the episode with Ross. All right, we are back with episode 36 of the Betting Startups podcast. And for this one, I'm joined by Ross from Grid Rival. Ross, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. I feel uh, honored to be here amongst a very impressive list of guests that you've put together before me. So thanks for having me. Maybe just to start off with Ross, and maybe before we get into the, the hard questioning, to the extent we have hard questioning here on the podcast, I'd love it if you could just sort of spend a few minutes at the beginning here just to talk at a high level about motorsports at the sport level and just talk a little bit about just where the sport's at. And obviously, I'm asking the question from the perspective of the reemergence of F1 as a bit of a, a almost a cultural zeitgeist right now, right? I mean, it's really hard to go too far without seeing some reference to, to F1 and to racing in general. It just really feels like the sport's really coming into its own, particularly from a North American perspective. And, you know, for me, looking at my Instagram feed, seeing all my friends that were at the Montreal GP a few months ago in June, and just sort of seeing it emerge to the level it's at today. I wonder if you can just sort of give listeners sort of a primer on, you know, the state of, of, of motorsport in general right now. Yeah, great, great starting question. So I think I would say that like motorsports is going through what I would call a digital revolution that was, in my opinion, many, many years overdue. Um, for, specifically, if we're talking about Formula One, Formula One was acquired back in, I believe, 2017 uh, by a company in the States called Liberty Media. And they had some pretty significant ambitions for it. But I think one of the big things they saw was that it was very, very underserved. It was not given the attention it could from the media side um, as an example, like the series itself and a lot of the drivers literally didn't even use social media until 2018 when Liberty came in. We're talking about the number one motorsports series on planet Earth. And so, you know, since then, they've done a tremendous amount of, of different things in the digital space, everything from VR, AR, um, you know, fantasy sports on their own, on their own level, um, other, other forms of gaming. They've really doubled down on media. They've built their own DTC medium, you know, where you can watch directly. And then I think just in motorsports in general, you're seeing, I don't, I don't know if I would say it's like a trickle down from F1, but I think it's just like kind of all of the series are, are going down this path, right? They're finally starting to engage um, fans in, in a digital way, in a digitally native way and get them involved in things that really get them excited about the sport outside of just watching a broadcast event, right? And so there's the convergence of that. You, you're seeing it in F1, you're seeing it in Formula E, you're seeing it in NASCAR, um, and, and you're starting to see it in the smaller series now as they, as they start to get an eye for, for what's working and, and how to engage the audience a little further. 
I'm a bit of a racing neophyte. So from my perspective as a neophyte, um, you know, it strikes me that nothing fundamentally about the sport has changed over the years. But to your point, I think over the last few years, maybe the way it's been packaged up and delivered to audiences certainly seems like it's gotten with the times. And again, the, you know, the cultural relevance of the sport now and again, particularly, I guess, F1 really seems like it's, it's up there with any other sport that gets talked about on a daily basis in daily discussions alongside NFL and things of that ilk. So I'm looking forward to getting into it, Ross, and really unpacking what you guys are up to with Grid Rival within the racing ecosystem. Maybe before we get into Grid Rival, just to introduce yourself, could you give folks listening a bit of a backgrounder on, on you and maybe some of the major chapters of your career up until the founding of Grid Rival? Yep. So very standard, kind of entrepreneurial story. Um, always, I've either worked for myself or, or ran businesses that I've started. You know, out, out of college, I bought and sold cars at auctions. That was like my kind of first business. It wasn't it wasn't what I would call super legitimate, but, <laughs> you know, I paid the bills and it was, it was, it was a learning experience. And then my first kind of real c- company, quote unquote, I started in uh, when I was 28 back in 2011, which is a digital media buying agency. And so we managed at, at our height, anywhere between 30 and $40 million on, uh, media spend on, you know, places like Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Google, um, being Yahoo. And so. Um, I, I, I grew and built that business for seven years, exited in late 2018, just after Passport was appealed, mm. which was interesting timing. Um, and Gridrail actually started uh, as a side project. So it started as, you know, most motorsports fans, and I don't know the exact percentage, but I put it, let's, you know, conservatively, at probably 50% are probably would consider themselves either mostly or exclusively motorsports fans. So I'm in that category, mostly a motorsports fan, right? I like golf, but like, you know, I will watch NFL games and I will go to NBA games if somebody gives me tickets, but that's about the extent of my engagement with traditional sports. And you find that's a pretty common thing with motorsports fans. And so kind of the origin story of, of how this started when I was running my last business was I just saw my friends playing fantasy football all the time. I saw the engagement created. The, the turning point is actually at a Formula One race in 2016. We had rented an RV and parked it along the side of the track there at Circuit of America's. And the Thursday evening before the event, I had a friend, I was inside our RV and I had a friend that was outside and I could hear him screaming. And so I went outside and I said, Hey man, what's going on? And he was, he was looking at his phone and he was yelling at the TV because his fantasy lineup was losing. (laughs) And so I just kind of remember that moment being like, why, you know, why does nothing like this exist for the sports that I love? And like, I, I kind of pined for that level of engagement. And so that was the start of it. We built a season long fantasy game um, for Formula One, had very little ambitions with it as a business. I knew nothing about the fantasy sports space. You know, FanDuel and DraftKings were names that I had heard, but I really didn't understand the ecosystem and how big they were. And and so it kind of just one thing led to another. That first year we launched it in 2017, we signed up 22,000 users in five days. And for obvious reasons, I started paying a lot of more attention to what we had just done. And I kind of knew, given my media buying and like digital background that I could somewhat understand and have the skills to build the audience, which is going to be a really important piece of it, um, especially considering how important user acquisition is in this space. And a lot of things came to fruition in late 2018. I was able to exit that last company and go full-time grid rival early 2019. And, um, you know, really started to pay a lot more attention. Obviously once passports repealed, started to do a lot more research on the absence of a product like this in the space. Um, so anyways, I'm saying a lot really quick. I think I did more than answer your question, but that's kind of my my story so far as an entrepreneur. Oh, cool. There's a few things to unpack there and preempted a couple other questions, but we'll we'll, we'll drill down a layer here, Ross. Um, as you think about it, what makes 
you know, racing as a sport conducive to fantasy? And how do you think about how this product fits into the overall racing fan experience? Yeah, I mean, I think it fits in as, as a second screen experience. Like, and I would consider that for the entire sports betting, you know, industry. I think there's a, there's, there's obviously a subset of sports bettors who are really hardcore, right? They, some people are doing this for a living, but I think by and large, um, I think this is actually even more so true of the next 10 years of sports bettors who have never even bet on a sport who are, will, who will be doing so the next 10 years. I think it's, it's really a fan engagement medium. That's how I see it. It's an entertainment tool to heighten the experience and, and create, um, you know, deeper engagement with the sport that people enjoy and love. And so that's how I see it in motorsports. As far as like how DFS specifically is conducive to racing, I, I wouldn't say that there's, there's anything specific to the daily fantasy model that, you know, is unique to racing. I think if, if, if compliance wasn't a thing, right. And we could all just roll out sports betting products. We all loved and desired without having to go through any of these barriers. Then I think the products that we all use would look completely different across the board. And I think that's probably true for motorsports daily fantasy was the obvious first step for a number of different reasons. First of all, first of all, was the game that we had built kind of by accident, really to scratch our own itch on the season long side was a really easy transition, right? Cause it was essentially a salary cap DFS model, but for motorsports. So it was kind of logical if the, if the, if the goal of ours was get to market as quick as possible, you know, it was easy to take the game mechanics that we had already built and roll them into a single event contest model where there's money involved. I think like long-term motorsports has some really exciting opportunities with in-play because, you know, a lot of people don't realize like some of these traditional sports that, that most people are, are wagering on the way that data is collected is very, very manual still in a lot of, a lot of respects. Well, with motorsports, you know, the data is streamed off of these vehicles telemetrically by the millisecond. Sometimes the amount of data that's created in a single formula one race is incredible. And so I think the things that could be done with that are really, really interesting from a, from an odds and, and markets perspective. Um, and so obviously that's much more down the line, but I think like DFS is for us really an entry point as a jumping off point to the market that made a lot of sense. Yeah. And I wanted to actually ask as well, just about the data landscape and ecosystem as it relates to racing. And I guess I reflect a little bit upon my own experience, uh, working for an operator for six years and managing product for that operator. And one of the largest requests we, we would get from our customers is more markets on racing. And again, particularly F1 and, um, you know, the big challenge there, the constraint was always the data and, you know, obviously you require data to power both season long and DFS product. And just curious, Ross, if, yeah, you can sort of help us understand just what the data landscape looks like in racing. And I guess just kind of what the landscape's like sort of vis-a-vis, -vis, I guess, the more traditional sports data landscape that a lot of us sort of know and, and follow on a daily basis. What's it, what, what, what's it like, I guess, in, in the racing world? Yeah, I'd say what it's like today is like pretty brutal. So, I, I mean, I just as an example, like one of the one of the games that we one of the sports we have on our platform right now is MotoGP. By volume, MotoGP is the second largest motorsport on planet Earth. Three or four hundred million people every year, you know, will 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 tune into MotoGP. Our data provider that we currently use gives us an update on that event forty five minutes after it's complete. There's no real time scoring, right? So it's like outside of really F1 and NASCAR right now, it's very difficult. And so the one thing I would say is like, my answer to your question is it's so dynamic because this industry has changed really quick. I, I have had multiple conversations in the past six months with people who are, you know, building startups in the data collection space that are focused specifically on niche sports. And so I think this problem might not be a problem 12 months from now, certainly like 
three to four years from now, I don't think it'll be a problem. Will data be created in the exact way that we maybe wanted to serve our audiences? I don't know. Um, but I think part of our product roadmap is the, the full awareness that that may be a problem that we want and end up solving internally. Um, that's expensive, but it's also, we also believe it could be a significant means for value creation inside of the business. If we are, you know, creating some of those, those data points, those markets that we are the only ones that have access to. You know, you've entered the ecosystem in the last few years as what I'll call sort of a single sport operator or a niche operator focusing exclusively on racing. And I'm curious, Ross, and, and maybe the data, you know, question is, is part of the answer here, but why do you think larger incumbent fantasy sports operators have more or less neglected racing for so long or why it's been such a almost sort of a second tier sport compared to a lot of the traditional sports that, that have captured the mind share for, for fantasy over the last few years? Like, why have they ignored it? Obviously, it's created an opportunity for you, but what is the thing that uh, you point to to help you understand maybe why this opportunity hasn't been pursued before now? Yeah, so I'll answer the question as somebody who came into the space as an outsider, right? And I come from the sports betting space. I brought my entrepreneurial experience and my passion for motorsports into this business, and I've learned it over the past couple of years. And and my assessment of it really is, if I was to sum it up, and then we'll we'll dive a, a little bit later, a, a deeper layer. And this actually was mentioned. We were both at SBC. I know I heard the term resource constrained no less than five or six times by a number of different operators there. And so I think. The summation of the problem is um, a small industry grew incredibly quickly, right? If we look at the total addressable market of sports betting in the United States from the day that PASPA was repealed, right? It probably grew by a magnitude of order, may maybe more. And so I think the immediate focus on the operator's plates was get to market as fast as, as we can. There's already this huge pool of people who are betting on the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, NBA. And that has, that has been just getting to market and, and capturing how audience has overwhelmed a lot of the operators just to do that. So I just don't think it's been a priority for them to build new audiences. New audiences are expensive to build. Um, it takes time. And so I think they still have what, what I would call low-hanging fruit. And so that's kind of like, that's probably like the most foundational, you know, way, way I would sum up the problem. And, and it has resulted in a lot of these sports betting products you see there have no motorsports coverage at all. Or if they do, it's like, you know, you have these sliders on the top of these, these apps that, that say what sport you're betting on. It's like motorsports is usually shoved in this single sport category, which is not, for, that's just never going to resonate with race fans. I think getting more granular, the, the data piece is a big piece of it, right? Um, if you look at how products are built in this space, it's very it, it, I think it's very unique and, and unlike any other space that I've been a part of, which is that the data side drives a lot of the product decisions. So people will, you know, they're, they're going to, they'll build a consumer facing product. Then they go to the data providers and say, well, what data do you have? Um, which is an interesting dynamic. And so if that's your approach and you're going out to all these different data providers saying, what motorsports markets do you have? You're not going to get very far. And so that's a problem that has to be solved truly. So. From the big operator side, there's the first thing I mentioned, right? There's a resource constraint. And then secondarily, and I think more granularly, there's this chicken and the egg problem, right? Where they assess the market. They say, well, total handle on all of motorsports right now is low relative to the NFL. Um, and so it's low because there's not data providers giving the odds that these people need to build products. And so there's like this kind of repetitive cycle. And so that's a big, big piece of what we were talking about earlier that Red Rivals can be solving um, internally. That makes, makes a ton of sense. Coming back to 
you know, the, the traction Grid Rival has, and you made reference to the, you know, the initial user growth, I think that spike of 22,000 users in the first five days, I think you had mentioned. Um, yep. You guys put out a release a few months ago, noting that through the first year of operations, you had passed 180,000 user mark, which is objectively extremely impressive for any B2C app and consumer facing app. It's a notoriously difficult space to acquire users in and, you know, to, to sort of reach that milestone in the first year is impressive. And just wanted to ask quickly about user acquisition, your strategy, and I guess, what do you attribute that quick growth to and, and yeah, sort of any unlocks you guys have found to really scale up that user base in a short amount of time? Yeah. I mean, so I, I think again, foundationally, like there's this inherent, you know, lack of of focus on this space. So I think like anybody who wants to look for this stuff doesn't really have much other choice. You know, the leagues are getting into this themselves. Like you're seeing F1 and NASCAR and IndyCar now, and actually MotoGP have their own, you know, league run fantasy games. But I think we all know, like those are only that well, so much depth, right? And so I think like it's partly, we don't have a lot of people that have focused on this audience, number one. I think number two, because it's a nascent audience and there's not a lot of focus, it means that um, we can acquire customers for, you know, a, a reasonable amount of money right now. I think the most important though is we focused almost obsessively as we built this product at every turn on how can one user create another user or how can one user create two more users. And so of the, we're, we, we may have actually passed 200,000 users in the past couple of weeks, but if, if not, we're like right around that mark. and over 50% of those have come from viral growth, from, from users inviting other users. And so that's, um, I think that's partly by, na by nature of the game that we have to in market today is still, you know, it's a season long fantasy game. And so season long, you know, leagues are, are, are conducive. They're a very camaraderie community driven product. And so the, the entire point of them is to play with your friends. So it's a very, it's been a very successful medium for us to, to grow the platform organically. So I'd say like those three things have been kind of the core as to to how we've done it so far. Yeah, and it's interesting sort of hearing you talk about that, Ross, and and connecting some dots to a few episodes ago on the podcast. I had Sanjay from Verdict MMA, of course, another single sport operator, if we want to frame it that way, and sort of listening to him talk about the role that the community played in the growth of Verdict and sort of hearing you talk about the same thing. And I think it's just sort of this common theme of this engaged, passionate fan base that I guess largely has been underserved up until this point, which again is is your opportunity. So, you know, really impressive growth numbers and, and obviously uh, a great trajectory you and the team are on. I guess, you know, from the product perspective, then you guys have the season long product. I know DFS has been in the plans as well. Can you talk a little bit about the product roadmap and, and where you guys are focused in the months ahead here? Yep. So we are, you know, hopefully uh, let's call it four to six weeks from rolling out our first daily fantasy product that's going to go live in 25 states, followed by most of Canada. And then we actually got our UK gambling license a number of months ago and are funding up some final things to, to be live in the UK as well. I've seen tremendous motorsport audience over there. Almost half of our active users are actually in the UK. So um, we're hoping that's going to be a, a really good market for us. Where we go from here, again, like this, this is a question we obviously get asked a lot. And it's, it's such an interesting one because this space is so dynamic regulatory environment is changing constantly, right? The data, the, the data probably talked about seems to be evolving quickly. And so we're constantly assessing it. But I think, like I said, DFS for us, is a jumping off point. The dream is to have a grid rival sports book, right? To have a motorsport specific sports book. And we believe that if we do that, we can capture 30, 50% of all handle bet on motorsports in, in the country at some day, some point in time. So that's the goal. Um, what that looks like exactly. I think I could, I think I could tell you what the plan is today, but I think you know, as we roll this product out 
And and we really have the bandwidth to start thinking about what the next iteration looks like, the non-DFS model looks like. I think like my answer is probably going to be different in six months just because of how quickly, quickly things are changing. In any case, it's going to trend, you know, more towards a kind of fixed odds house type model. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you're going to have that optionality there to kind of take whatever path you choose. And there are a few paths. And I guess I just preempted the question I was going to ask around where do you see grid rival in sort of three to five years from now? But uh, no, it's a logical extension, I think, Ross, from from where I see you guys now and, and, and where you could be. So definitely going to be an exciting uh, few years ahead to, to sort of observe which way you choose to go with it all. Um, I also wanted to ask a little bit about the funding background and the fundraising journey for Grid Rival. Uh, you guys put out a release, I think last October, announcing a $3 million round you closed at that time. Obviously, a little bit of a different world at that time from a fundraising perspective, but point remains, you, you closed that round of funding. And I just wanted to ask a little bit if you can reflect back to that time. And as you were out there sort of pitching the opportunity and, and doing the roadshow, what was some of the feedback you were hearing from investors about the opportunity you're pursuing and particularly just around some of the feedback you heard around motorsports as a sport and sort of where you were trying to wedge yourself within it. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing we heard from people that really didn't take the time to dive into this audience was this single sport objection, right? A single sport audience is not going to be big enough. It won't work. And so I think the thing people miss there is that motorsports is not a single sport. F1 and NASCAR are different sports. NASCAR and IndyCar are different sports. IndyCar and NHR drag racing, the only thing the absolute only thing these things share is the medium by which they compete, which is in a vehicle with wheels. So it's as different as the NFL is to hockey, right? You have an object that you're pushing across a field or a rake or whatever into another object to, to score a point. And so those things share that. There's things that they share. There's things that they don't share. Motorsports is an entire category, just like traditional sports is. And so KB partners, Steven and Lance over there who, who led that deal. And then Lloyd Danzig, who's been heavily involved on the investment side, um, were some of the people who really dove into that and understood that it is a very unique audience. And I think that it's one of the few that's large enough to build a venture style return business. Um, there's a lot of these niches out there, but like, you know, there's probably a small subset of sports bettors who like want a really unique product for curling, but like, that's not going to be a unicorn business. <laughs> um, so I think like, I think motorsports is an exception. I think motorsports is a tremendous audience, both inside in, in growing faster, probably in the United States than anywhere else in the world right now. But, um, I, I, I'd say even in the United States, like soccer was here 40 years ago, right? There's, there's, we're just scratching the surface of how big this thing's going to get. Um, still very big in the rest of the world. And so I think, um, I think that's the one big thing that, that the, you know, people that didn't invest and didn't get it, that was, that was the reason I think the people that did invest and did get it, that was conversely, that was the reason they, they saw an opportunity. Makes a ton of sense and draw some parallels between that and esports, whereby, you know, a lot of people frame esports as a sport, but actually each individual title within esports is its own sport, right? Dota is different from League of Legends, which is different from CSGO, et cetera, et cetera. And I hadn't thought about motorsports being yeah. the same way, but actually there's quite a few parallels um, hearing you talk about it, yeah. which is interesting, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, each obviously brings its own sort of unique challenges from a product perspective, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll save that part, but uh, talking about the fundraising journey and you named a few folks that are, you know, involved in, in, in the company at the investor level. I understand a few of them are also involved quite actively as advisors. And I actually wanted to ask you as a, you know, repeat founder and you've had a successful exit and, you know, you're now building Grid Rival and you've built this, this really star-studded advisory team who's adding a lot of value as you grow the business. 
Just curious if you can think about what you might say to other founders, maybe earlier on in their own entrepreneurial journeys about what they should look for in potential advisors for their own startups, maybe why they should even consider getting advisors in the first place. And, you know, I talked to a lot of, you know, founders that are earlier on in their journeys on the podcast. And a lot of them tell me offline that, that they are thinking about advisors, but they don't know where to start. And yeah, just sort of looking at your advisory board and sort of hearing the value they're, they're giving you. Wondering if you can just sort of share any anecdotes you have about just advisory boards in general for startups. Yeah. So I'd say two things. One is specificity and one is what, how, how the you know, terms are structured. So uh, specifically, the first one, specificity, I'd say bring people on that fill an exact niche that you think that you need, right? Uh, if it's the betting space, maybe it's somebody on the data side that can move the needle there. Then maybe it's somebody else who can can help guide you with fundraising or, or whatever it is. Like, I think the more, um, and, I've, and I've made a lot of mistakes here, so I'm saying this from somebody who's gone down this path and, and seen it not work and seen it work really well. And in my experience too, advisors are, it's kind of like employees, like you can do the absolute most amount of interviewing and, you know, reference checks. And a lot of times, you know, you really just don't get an opportunity to see what it's like until you guys start working together. Um, and so advisors are the same thing, which means my second point, which is how you structure the, the terms is a, is a, is a big thing. And I just say avoid structuring deals that involve time-based vesting. Um, because I, I think it, it leaves an opportunity on the table to do something. All my advisory deals now are structured based off of hitting a milestone, whether it's a fundraising goal or, you know, getting a certain product to market goal or something where they have to actively be involved in participating versus just like every quarter, you know, part of, part of their options best. Um, that's something that has not worked very well for me. Yeah, it's all about actually demonstrating value, I guess, which is the whole point of having advisors in the first place. That makes a lot of sense. It's very actionable advice for, for other entrepreneurs listening. And if I could pick your brain for one other piece of advice, if you could share with other entrepreneurs that might be listening to this, Ross, um, again, as a repeat founder, what lessons or learnings have you taken from previous pursuits that you brought into Grid Rival? And again, just sort of thinking about the, the track record you have, like what, what are the learnings you've taken from other projects coming into this one that, to help sort of avoid any pitfalls or mistakes along the way? Yep. So most founders, especially in the tech space early on are product people. And that's just by nature, right? A lot of, a lot of us break out because we have an idea for a product that, that we, that we want to bring to market. And so I think my advice is as early as you can remember that you are building a business and not a product. And, and the thing that has really, the, one of the parts that I love specifically is, is, you know, creating synthesis amongst the team. And so to do that, we use, we have a document internally called vision to values. And it's something that in my last company, I did way, way too late, um, which is really articulating to the team where we're going, why we're going there, how we're going there, what's important along the way, what are the priorities of the business, what are the objectives, and then cascading those down so that every person in the organization has a clear understanding of what we're doing together. And ideally, if you're doing that well, it creates inspiration. So I think it's something that founders tend to as, as really product focused people, they just kind of leave that and, and kick the can down the road. And then when there's, you know, all of a sudden 20 or 30 people on the team, they start thinking through it. And maybe then at the, that point, there's not cohesiveness around the values and the business and the culture and what's important to people. And so undoing those things I learned at my last company is incredibly difficult. Um, and so the earlier you can, can understand that and the earlier you can really grasp the concept of like, this is a product, but it's also a business and we have to get people to work together collaboratively and create a culture and, and a vision that's exciting and sustainable is probably the best advice I could give from, from my experience. 
Yeah, and I'll endorse that advice. And uh, as a product person myself, I'm extremely guilty of falling into that trap in the past as well. So it resonates yeah. deeply. And I am, I am too. I say I'm, I'm talking to myself as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. Looking ahead just to the rest of the year here, Ross, what are the major milestones uh, you and the team are focused on with GridRival and sort of what does a successful 2022 look like for the team when you look back on it? Yeah, so we had kind of three major priorities for this seed round for our company. And I'll just, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about the, the major one, which is just what we call internally post revenue, just getting our first pro- product to market, which we're, like I said, hopefully, you know, 30 to 45 days away from. Other than that, we want to end the year with um, getting our, our goal is two other sports on the products. So NASCAR and IndyCar, hopefully, by the start of next season and then get live in, in Canada and the UK. So that's like, that, those are the major milestones for us. We obviously have a lot of internal, you know, feature product specific things that we want to do as well. But I think the, the, those two goals I mentioned take precedence over everything else. And so that's the, that's going to be the primary focus of the team over the next three to four months um, into Q4 um, as we prep for 2023. And then obviously, you know, major important milestone for us, we're going to be raising our Series A. Timing on that is, is kind of TBD. It's probably either start this fall or the spring, just depending on what we're seeing in the market. Um, we're well capitalized. We have the runway to really decide, you know, when we want to do those things, which is a great spot to be. But in any case, like sometime in the next six months, we'll be starting to put that together. Awesome. And my standard closing question, which I ask all my guests at the end, Ross, I don't know if you are ready for it, but here we go. Um, if you weren't working in sports tech or doing anything in racing or weren't working in any of your past careers in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? Yeah, so I have. I'm, I'm an avid listener. I'm very familiar with the question. <laughs> and I feel like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke into like the loophole I found out, which is like there's no prerequisite that it has to be, you know, anything realistic or based off of a skill set <laughs> I have in this, in this universe. So I think if I was a parallel universe and I could pick anything I wanted to be a professional golfer, I, I love it. I don't get enough time to play it these days and I'm, you know, pretty poor at it, but, um, I think that would be a fun job. Yeah. It's as good as it gets, right? You're outdoors all the time. You're away from the computer right. and getting the steps in. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, so well, for folks listening that might want to check out the product, keep in touch with grid rival or get in touch with you. How would you suggest they best go about doing that? Yeah, you can find me LinkedIn. You can email me, Ross, at gridrival.com. Um, you can find us in the app stores on iOS and Android. And uh, stay tuned for our, our daily fantasy product launch here in 25 states sometime in September. Awesome, Ross. Really appreciate the time today. Wishing you and the team all the best for the rest of the year ahead here and look forward to continuing to follow the Grid Rival story. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jesse.